Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm Connor Boyle. We're talking business today with a CEO looking at how our transport and mobility can do more. Will Butler Adams is chief of Brompton Bicycles, those beloved two-wheelers that can take you across town and then fold up neatly upon arrival. He'll be telling us the company's journey and where he thinks it's heading. Cycling has long been touted as being part of the solution for how we can make our cities less congested, more green and generally more pleasant places to be. But not every bike suits every home, office space or every train carriage for that matter, if you feel like taking a breather on the way. One bicycle that seems to suit any occasion is the unmistakable silhouette of Brompton. The company's unique folding design, first created by Andrew Ritchie in the late 1970s, has been a favourite for city dwellers looking to get the most of their space for over 40 years. It's now the subject of a new book, The Brompton, Engineering for Change, written by Brompton CEO Will Butler-Adams and co-author Dan Davis, who's writing on business and the economy, as appeared in the Financial Times and The New Yorker, among others. Will recently joined our host, Rosamond Irwin of The Sunday Times, to tell her about the Brompton story. Here's Roz and Will in conversation. Welcome to Intelligence Squared, Will. Good morning. Why did you want to write the book now? Why was this the right moment? Principally because we have a pretty large problem globally. Capitalism is not really quite delivering in the way that we had hoped. It's just too much wealth in relatively small number of people's hands. And, you know, I... I, I've observed things in 20 years in my career, and the book is really around the main observations I have, one of which is we need to make things. You're not going to solve the world's problems by new, moving numbers from one screen to another you know, in banking, and you're not going to solve the world's problems by creating another litigious document at £600 an hour. We've got plenty of that. We've got to create real solutions to the problems we face as a globe. And that requires making stuff, doing stuff, creating tangible physical solutions. And I worry that too many of our bright minds are getting taken off into not really adding value to society. And the other one is you, you, you can't have an impact on society if you just have a brilliant idea. You somehow got to turn that brilliant idea into a viable business and you won't impact society if your business is just sort of, you know, theory. It's got to make a profit. You've got to employ people. You've got to um, grow bit by bit. You've got to be international. And, and growing a business means you impact society, but it's terribly important. And it's often sort of overrated with sort of, I'm the boss, some special, amazing person, which is not true, or you're some very rare, amazing entrepreneur, which is all guff. Anyone can do it. You, you know, you've met enough enough of these these so-called successful people to know that they're pretty average. Um, what you need is belief, passion, and I wanted to just demystify that and 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 remind people that, you know, in fact, you can be entrepreneurial inside a business. You can be a leader inside a large organisation, um, and that that business is not intimidating. It's a really exciting, positive thing. Occasionally, a little bit scary, but that's life. And then the final thing is. We've got to change the world. You know, we really do. Like, we really do. Because if we don't, um, we've got problems. And we, and I say we, we in the West are very, very privileged. We have been brought up in a place where there isn't hunger, drought, war. 
we've broadly been given a, a pretty decent education. So if we, the privileged, are not worrying about solving the world's problems, we well, don't expect anyone else is going to because they've got bigger things to worry about. So we have to take that responsibility and do something about it. So, you know, and also we all went through lockdown, so that makes you reflect so much on what you're doing. And that made me think, well, come on, let's go for it. Just to expand on that point, I want to quote a bit of the book that I found really powerful. Um, we live on planet Earth, you write, a spectacular little blue dot where we're all connected to each other and to the environment that supports us. But for the last 250 years, business has seen its role as delivering profit to shareholders, too often at all costs, resulting in the destruction of societies and our environment all over the world. Brompton you could argue is a very different form of business from that, um, you know, born from a mad event, inventor, but, but, but obviously has become immensely successful. What would you like other CEOs to take from the way you run Brompton and, and also Brompton's mission? And, and how do we get a sort of more, what some people might term a more responsible capitalism? Well, the sad truth is, at the moment, the CEOs won't listen because the status quo pays and they can get away with it. What we need to do, and we is, a, is, a, is, a, is quite a big group of businesses that have a slightly different perspective, that the role of business is to contribute to society and to contribute to the environment. And if you get that right, you will then deliver to shareholders, but that way round, and that's very important. Um, but I think if those businesses can be more successful and i think they will be more successful because the consumer is not an idiot the consumer can see what we're living through at the moment i mean just in the uk at the moment we're, we're going through the most extraordinary weather which is you know in our lives we've never seen anything like it and this is happening you know we've got situation in germany where the river they can't send boats up i mean it's pretty extraordinary light today so the consumer is going to be more aware of who they're buying from and what they're buying and what the company is doing behind the product or service that they're buying. So my feeling is unless organizations are thinking and rethinking how they set about um, caring for the environment, they won't have any customers. They will go out of business and that will drive change because the most important person is the customer. The customer just forgets how powerful they are and they need to use that power and use that responsibility of where they spend their money more carefully to contribute to the, the power that business has to solve many of the world's problems. You've said before that when you were first asked to run the company, you'd never actually heard of Brompton. Can you tell me about that first conversation and how it all happened? Well, you, you're being a bit generous there because uh, I certainly wasn't asked to run it. I was 28. I met a guy on a bus. I was living in Middlesbrough. Um, the guy on the bus was a great friend of the mad inventor. I went along to meet the mad inventor, saw a factory that looked like something out of the sort of, I don't know, 1880s, or maybe that's being a bit unfair, but it was pretty chaotic. And I, and, and, and I thought, well, London's a pretty cool place. I'll come to a couple of years with the mad inventor, have a laugh and get on with my career. Um, the bike didn't feature much, actually, in me taking the decision. It was the fact that the factory was so disorganized, I thought I could add value. Um, but then the bike slightly changed my life. I lived, I was not really an urbanite, but, but it, I had such fun on it. And uh, got, you know, I thought I was going to be there for two years, and I've now been there for 20. So, you know, and in the process, over a period of time, then became the CEO. 
And what had you been doing before? Because yours is not a typical corporate chief executive path. Um, Well, it's not typical in the UK. It's a bit more typical in Germany. So I did engineering at Newcastle um, and then got a job with ICI in a sort of management professional development scheme where they gave me ludicrous responsibility when I hadn't a clue what I was doing, managing ginormous um, chemical plants that really could kill people. I mean, if they didn't, things didn't work correctly, great, great puffs of acetic acid. So it was a real adventure um, and really interesting, steep, steep learning curve. Um, and then, of course, gave up all of that because I had a lot of responsibility, huge budgets, lots of staff, and then ended up working for someone at a complete different spectrum where you know he signed every check, was a you know, bit of a megalomaniac, genius, but megalomaniac. And for a time, I did wonder what on earth I was doing, whether this was the right decision. But that's half the fun of life. You can't always be in the, your safety safety sort of net. It does feel, though, that that decision has um, massively paid off because you look at the growth of, of Brompton under your watch and it is quite astonishing. Could you have ever imagined that, that you'd, you'd balloon so much in terms of staff numbers, in terms of turnover in the period you, you, oh, you've obviously been there much longer than you expected, but, oh, but over those 20 years? I reckon within about two years, I knew this product could change people's lives. That's quite rare. There are lots of products that claim that they'll do all sorts of amazing things to your life. Most of them are overrated and you never needed them in the first place. But this bike that Andrew invented genuinely does really add value. Um, So pretty early on, I had a feeling, believed if I was able to be um, supported and, and find great people to help me, we could do something pretty cool. And remember, it's been about just under 20% year-on-year growth. And when you read all the financial papers and we're all going to be unicorns in two years and we're all going to be millionaires overnight, and you know, the quiet compound growth is a very, very powerful thing. And, um, and people think it's been an overnight success, but it's the classic. It's been 20 years of quite hard work. To become an overnight success. Now, I should say that I, I've interviewed you once before in 2015, and you, you sort of gave me a very useful lesson that has stayed with me. I sort of asked if Brompton was sort of elitist, and you um, pointed out, you sort of pointed out, the, uh, pointed outside the window and said, uh, look, mm. the Brompton's a transport solution. There are some more expensive uh, transport solutions in the car park outside. Obviously, uh, you know, cars are a lot more expensive than bikes. Um, how do we make people realise that those choices, so uh, choosing to spend a thousand pounds on a Brompton as opposed to five thousand pounds on a car, is actually you know a decision that will start to improve the world? I think you can't start with that. People aren't going to do things to improve the world. We're not quite that eager, not egotistical, not egotistical. We think about ourselves. And, and I think a better example than the car even is, is, is this thing, um, this phone. That's about £1,000. And when that came out, um, the Apple phone, everybody thought, well, that was an elitist unless you're completely loaded. Who on earth is going to spend that much money? The truth is the reason why so many people have bought it is because it's useful. 
it genuinely does add value to our lives, unlike so many other things that have been promising that. This thing does. Uh, you could argue some of the things it does really don't really add that much value, but we love it anyway, so we still use it. Um, and then the second thing is it's been made affordable because you don't spend a thousand pounds on a phone, you spend whatever it is, 40 pounds a month. So we, we as a company need to articulate the value of this product. And you know, historically engineering companies are not so good at that. They're not very good, good at designing stuff and making stuff, but articulating the value. Where we've been so lucky with Brompton is the thing flipping well works. And our customers have done a better job at articulating the value to the community and to the like the customer than us. And we just happen to have been launching this product or the tenure that I've been involved, the world of social media has come of age. And that value has been communicated by our customers and that's been completely awesome. So I've been able to focus on bikes, <laughs> making stuff. And the customer's done most of the work in, in telling other people about this thing. It's bloody brilliant. Yeah, I think this is a good place to say that I own Brompton and have, and it was my 30th birthday present to myself. Um, so I've got a lot of use out of it. I'm, I'm 38 now. It's eight years of a bike um, and it's still, still, in, it's still young. Still it's young. still in fairly good nick as well. Um, yeah. The thing about being a Brompton owner that I know well is that there is something a little bit cultish about it. So mm. we sort of nod at other Brompton, maybe Masonic is a better word. We, we nod as you, as you see another Brompton um, cycling around. What, what do you think is it that, that makes it? Uh, it feels a little bit like a very nice club to be in. It's because it's so counterintuitive. I mean, everything about it is not what it is. I mean, you, if you took a picture of a, I don't know, a Lamborghini or a Porsche to anywhere in the world, even to the deepest, darkest parts of the world and showed it to somebody who'd never seen it before. They'd look at whatever this thing is and they'd tell you two things. It goes fast, whatever it is, and it's expensive. It just tells you. The Brompton is so at the other end of the scale. I mean, well, I mean, what is it for starters when it's folded up? Is that, what, is that a wheelchair? What? Oh, no, no, it's a bike. I'm like, what? And then you sort of <laughs> unfold it and then they go, oh, well, I don't want to get on that thing. It's immediately going to collapse on me. That looks a bit dodgy, but it can't be any good anyway. It's got funny little wheels. So you're, surely you're going to have to pedal so hard. And so everything, and then you say it's a thousand pounds and they've keeled over because they're like, what? So it's, it's counterintuitive, but actually it adds value. Actually, it's awesome. Actually, it does more than you think. And eight years on, you've still got another 10, 15 years to go. Back to the dear old iPhone. You know, when you're, what, when you're using your iPhone in 20 years, no chance. Three years and it's in the bin. So somehow the, the sort of the little club is that you as a consumer or as a person have, looked, have seen past the obvious and realized this thing works. And that's a little bit you can be maybe even a little bit smug about that because actually you've discovered it where others may not see it. I don't know. I think that's probably what it is. Um, and it's not the same all over the world because we have a different um, – the, the, the bike sits in a different place in Europe than it does in North America, than it does in Asia for all sorts of different reasons. It is pretty much affordable in Europe if somebody genuinely wants one and have a use for one, just like we were saying with cars. For most people in Europe, that's not the case in Asia. So it is a, 
it really is a premium product in Asia in a way that it isn't in the same same way in Europe. That's obviously an area in which you've had enormous growth sales in Asia. What's the driver of that there? As you say, it's it's a different market there. So there are two things in in the Europe. We are broadly a transport tool, even though we have lots of fun. I I had a fantastic ride down the Thames yesterday with some friends. Nothing transport about it, it was glorious. Um, in Asia, we are much more of a recreational tool, and that is because the infrastructure isn't there, because the, the sort of days of when the bicycle was something that poor people rode, and therefore anyone who was affluent wouldn't want to be seen on a bicycle, they want to be seen in their car. Um, they're further behind in the trajectory. Um, but what's quite exciting about Asia is the Brompton is making cycling cool again. It is aspirational. It is sort of premium and even super premium in, in China. And that's not really what it was designed for. And, and when Andrew and I went out in the early days, certainly in Japan, Andrew was sort of aghast to see Bromptons that were polished within an inch of their life, hardly looked like they'd ever been used. He was devastated because he wants to see them covered in crap and, you know, literally worn to bits. And um, But actually, that group of customers have made cycling aspirational. We had two uh, amazing Indonesian Brompton customers just do the Edinburgh, London, Edinburgh ride, which is insanely hardcore on two Bromptons, has to be done at a certain time. They did it and they had a man, they were sponsored in their club, their Brompton club in Indonesia helped them come over and then they met the ambassador and the whole thing's amazing. But those people are slightly movers and shakers. They're becoming keen cyclists. They are influential in introducing the first cycle lanes and there and then few of them start to use it as happened in Taipei and in Seoul actually as a mode of transport so they're the the early adopters and behind them and there are a whole load of people who are realizing cycling's cool again they're not going to buy a Brompton it's not affordable in certain parts of age but they are getting back on a bike and that really is a positive. Let's talk about the engineering side, because I think a lot of people may not understand how Brompton's actually made. Um, in the book, you, you talk about this advertisement back in uh, 1987 for torch welders. Um, but of course, the bike isn't welded at all. Um, it, it's made by this process known as brazing. Could you just in very simplistic terms for ignoramuses like me, explain how that works? So, I mean, in the simplistic term, when you think of welding, you think of two bits of metal, and then you think of a filler metal, which melts. It's the same metal as the two bits you're trying to sort of stick together. And the bit in the middle melts, and the other two bits melt, and all three melt, and then it's stuck together. What we're doing is we're using something more similar to sort of solder or glue, where effectively the metal is not actually melting at all. And the stuff you're gluing it together with is something different. It's not the same as the other two bits of metal. And in our case, we'll, we'll heat it to about 890 degrees. It melts at about 1300 degrees. When you're welding, you take it to about 1350. So all three melt. This is lower temperature. And it has some real advantages. Um, by putting in less heat, you distort the frame less, which gives you better wheel alignment, particularly important on a folding bike. And also it weakens the metal less because you get something, you get shrinking when the metal cools, particularly the bead of weld, and then you get something called the heat affected zone. And the less heat you put in, the less shrinking and then the less stresses in that part, which means the bike is actually stronger. The, the downside is it's 
quite hard to train someone. It takes a long, long time. It's a, it's, it's not so much an art because it's highly skilled, less than an art, because we can't have art. It can't be artisan. It's got to be very repeatable, but it requires high skill. That takes a long time, two to three years, um, which is why when the bike sort of became a bit of a fashion thing from the 50s, when it sort of ceased to be a mode of transport, uh, and it became a sort of literally the cheapest place you can make it. And one year you produce one bike, the next year it was a completely new one and a perpetual new and improved. Um, the, the bike industry was ch chasing the cheapest bike and the easiest, quickest way to make a bike is welding. Um, spending two, two and a half years investing in staff to teach them how to braise just didn't fit with the, with the supply chain model for the for the sort of recreational fashion bikes we've had for 50 years and and luckily for Brompton we Andrew as as he it took him 13 years to get this thing off the ground he didn't have a problem disregarding what Evan was saying to him he did that for so long he went with what he felt was the right thing and and here we are today and we've taken quite a long time in perfecting it. He doesn't always seem, and I mean this in the nicest possible way, as, as the easiest person to work under in the book. Um, you talk about at one point quite early on um, getting uh, a digital weighing scale yes. and getting told that that's a sort of ridiculous purchase. Um, what, what have been the challenges? Because obviously he's an inventor, he's a a creative genius, I think a lot of people would say. Um, that can make somebody perhaps uh, a little bit challenging at times to work with. Is, is that fair? Oh, completely fair. And um, But life isn't full of loads of roses and everyone skipping around. Life is full of challenges. I mean, I'm a massive fan. It doesn't mean he doesn't do my head in and occasionally drive me potty. Um, and we've, you know, we've got to where we've got to um, through that tension in many respects. Um, and, and the reason we are here is because he gave up his controlling stake in the business, you know, and, and that's quite a big commitment from him back in 2008. He needed a bit of help from his friends to persuade him. Uh, and I think once or twice he's seen me do things and decided it was a total disaster. He should never have done it. And, you know, but th that's normal. And transition, particularly with any a founder inventor, is always quite a challenge. But even though we are so different, we're both engineers, but our absolute, the thing that makes us happy, what the purpose of this business we have total alignment on, which is to impact society, for, to see people riding around in it, to, to give people a sense of the freedom that comes with, with the bike that he invented. So whilst we might have disagreements and he, he, he can be frustrating, you know, the purpose is very, very uniform across both of us. Intelligence Squared is a tight-knit team doing big things, and it means we're always looking for tools that can help streamline managing tasks. That's why I want to talk to you for a minute about NetSuite. NetSuite provides cloud-based software to get things moving. Maybe your business has been humming, but you can feel things are falling behind a little bit. Or perhaps your team is getting snowed with manual tasks and closing those books is taking forever. If this sounds like you, you should know these three numbers. 37,000, 25, 1. 37,000, that's the number of businesses which have upgraded to NetSuite by Oracle. 25, NetSuite turns 25 this year. 
That's 25 years of helping businesses do more with less, allowing them to close their books in days, not weeks, and drive down costs. And one, because your business is one of a kind. So you get a customized solution for all of your KPIs in one efficient system with one source of truth. It means you can manage risk, get reliable forecasts, and improve margins. It's everything you need to grow all in one place. NetSuite is now making an unprecedented offer to make more of that kind of thing possible. Right now, you can download NetSuite's popular KPI checklist designed to give you consistently excellent performance absolutely free at netsuite.com squared. That's netsuite.com squared to get your own KPI checklist. netsuite.com squared. And one of the things that's, that's rather amazing about Brompton is obviously that, that you're based in West London. Um, you say in the book, you know, if you see a new startup business has the word factory in its address, it usually just means it's in a brick building that was once a very long time ago in, in sort of Victorian age, uh, a factory. Whereas, of course, you actually are making this um, it, it's still in the capital. Um, how rare is that? And... Um, and, and why why did you want to stay in London and why was that so integral to the business? We moved to the new location that we're in six years ago. Um, and at the time, you know, we did explore moving, not never thought of moving outside the UK, but looked at moving outside of London. But one of the problems, I mean, manufacturing, and it has happened when we've looked at other sites, there's endless people, councils or some sort of investment bodies, you know, regional investment bodies come along and say, oh, yes, you must come here. In fact, we'll pay you to come and we'll stick you in the arse end of nowhere on some enormous industrial estate with some gates at the front. Um, well, I mean, that's going to save us some money in the short term because, you know, the rent's going to be cheaper and we may even get a grant to, 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 to fit it out. But well, none of us are going to need to use the bike. I mean, you don't need a Bronson to go to a factory in you know, absolute middle of nowhere, which is where most of these industrial sites are. You have to drive there. There's no way there's going to be a cycle lane to your factory. And if you do get decide to go on a bike, you'll probably go on a road bike. And so, and that's not going to matter in a year or two, but, but over time, we're going to be making a product for which none of us have a use. That's a bit weird. And for me, that is so important. So many of us use this bike. I mean, you know, we've got racking. We've probably got, I mean, it's a Monday, so attendance is a bit low we're trying hard to get everybody in all the way from monday through to friday but it, mondays and fridays is a bit of a nightmare but still you've probably got 150 bromptons down there from staff right across the company using them and and of course then they get annoyed by the fact that this little thing doesn't work or that's a bit annoying or i was riding this prototype and this funny thing happened and that's just very valuable so we didn't want to let that go and then more broadly i think i think we really do want to reconsider um, how we make things in the world. And the idea of hiding them away is actually not clever because you then cease to inspire the next generation to be makers because it's hidden away. It's a bit like in the extreme, you know, an abattoir. Everybody sees lovely sheep and then you suddenly see lamb, but you don't see the bit in between. Well, we can understand why you don't want to see that bit in between, but you know, but with manufacturing, if you don't inspire people, if people don't see it, if it's hidden away, they don't think that they ever want to be it. So actually, there's no reason manufacturing is not dark satanic mills. It's not, you know, people in a, you know, overall with a monkey wrench. 
it's sophisticated, interesting, creative, fascinating, rewarding business. And you could have a factory with people living above it right in a city. No reason you can't do that. But that mentally, we, we've, we've lost sight of that and we all shove it into these industrial estates and hide it away. And I think that's, that's a bad thing. Well, speaking of, of sort of um, invention, um, when I interviewed you seven years ago, you were really struggling to make an electric bike. And it was sort of a running joke uh, with your investors yeah. that, you know, you'd say, this is the future. We're nearly there when you had a prototype. What have been the logistical challenges and how, as a company, have you now overcome them? I wouldn't say overcome is quite the word, but because you're permanently, the more you learn, the more you know, the more you marry, the more you learn, it's a journey. But we for, at the time, 30, 30 years, 35 years, had effectively been a metal basher. That's what we were doing. Um, quite sophisticated, quite clever, um, fine design, but it was mechanical engineering. We didn't really want to get into the um, electronics and software world but we were forced into it a bit like Andrew was forced into designing his own bike and making it because no one else would make it for us. And all we were offered was stuff that went on to e-bikes seven years ago, ginormous, big, bulky, heavy things, which is fine for a bog standard e-bike, but not if you want to try and carry it. So we, 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 we had to do it ourselves. And you know, as ever, with all great leaps of faith, we totally underestimated how complicated it was. We underestimated how much resource we'd need. You know, we went in with naive enthusiasm and it's been a bit of a steep learning curve, and, you know, to a point where we had all sorts of false starts and made mistakes and thought somebody was making it for us and then they let us down and, you know, all the good stuff. But if you're determined and as long as you don't, you know, compound investment, just like compound growth, don't bet the farm, bet enough, know you can afford it, learn, you know, lick your wounds, go at it again, go at it again and bit by bit you learn and you get there. And we are, we've now got 25 people just doing software electronics. I mean, we are getting pretty damn good at it, uh, but we're certainly not there. There's so much cool stuff. And then this is a world that's fast moving and, and, and technology is changing. So what was even you know, impossible five years ago is now possible. So that's quite exciting. One of the big changes that's happened in recent years as well, more broadly outside Brompton is the sort of slew of city bike projects mm. we now see, sometimes uh, piles of discarded bikes on pavements and big yeah. companies like Uber muscling in. Um, how much is that a challenge to, to Brompton and what, what you guys do? And is that making people think there's a downside of a, of a cycling revolution? And is that perhaps quite unhelpful? That's a, it's a good question. And I think disruption, I mean, I think what these, a lot of these companies did is just horrendous. And it's absolutely rinsing the, in inverted commas, greenness. It's the sort of classic, another example of awful capitalism, because they're sort of riddled in greenness, pretending it's amazing and absolutely wrecking a place and producing tons of rubbish and waste. So don't get me wrong. The fundamental principle is wrong. But when you're going through a transition, which we are globally, we've for 50, 60 years, we've created cities that are so ill-conceived which you know, we've now on reflection realize are bad for our health, bad for the, the vast majority of the world that live in cities. We've created cities that are not in, 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 in line with, 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 with happiness and living and urban living. So that transition is, is kicked off and is happening at, at pace. 
And whenever you have that sort of rigorous change, there will be disruption and, and quite a lot of it will go wrong. And you have to take some of that on the chin and accept that part of the change results in disruption. You could argue the friction between car drivers and cyclists is another consequence of that. And, and there's been a lot of that, but it's just part of the journey of change. And what we're trying to do, I'm repeating myself, is grow compound growth. We're not going to try and raise half a billion pounds and then spank it on an ill thought through just gush of, I don't know what. We, 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 we set up a little bike car scheme and it's been phenomenally difficult. And I've been absolutely hounded by my board and shareholders for it. Um, but 10 years on, we're still going quietly growing the network and we're delivering value to customers we've now got 80 locations we have people trying the bike and it's glorious but it's been difficult but we've done it in a slow way and we are if you like more like the tortoise i mean you say we've been having this stunning growth and you look back over 20 years and it has been but it's been bit by bit and um but disruption will come and we have to just accept it it's just not the approach i would take one thing that, that has really struck me looking at, at Brompton as a company is that you're doing something quite different from a lot of cycling. You know, the perception of cycling uh, in the UK, and, and this is a, a real shame, I think, is still that sort of um, cliche of the mammal who's sort of escaping mm. their mm. unhappy marriage by uh, going cycling in lots of lycra. And you're the exact opposite of this. You're saying to people, you don't need to wear Lycra. Um, you don't need, you know, it doesn't need to be a, a, a fitness tool, uh, although obviously a great benefit. Um, and you don't even need to sweat. Do you think the perception of cycling in the UK um, is really quite unhelpful to encouraging more people to cycle? I do. Yeah. And it's a very UK thing, actually, because I'm. we are in... We, we sell bikes in 50 countries around the world. So I've, I've been lucky enough to travel and learn and see and cycle with lots of people all over the world. It's a particularly UK where it's so sporty and so a sort of hardcore exercise thing. I mean, I tell you a little story which best describes it and, and, and reminds us. You have to hold the mirror up in front of yourself to remind yourself from time to time how what a wally you are. Um, and, and, and don't get me wrong, road cycling... And cycling, I've done great rides, 300 miles, and I like my Lycra, and I get on my Brompton, of course, because I've got something to prove, um, which is never really designed for 100-mile rides, and, and I love it. But, but when we're talking about urban travel, and you're traveling three to five miles, you know, we're not, it's not a sort of triathlon um, training session. And imagine if you were going to a meeting, and it was a 25-minute walk away and you're leaving the office, and you just decide to get up from your desk, give yourself 25 minutes to walk to the meeting on the other side of town, off you go. The colleague you're going with says, um, I'll meet you there, but I'm just, I'm just gonna go off and get changed. Bit weird, funny. Oh, anyway, don't think anything of it. You leave the building, you wander off, and you've been gone about sort of seven, eight minutes, and then your colleague, who decided to go, suddenly comes shooting past you with like these spiked shoes on, full running gear, like herring along, like, like legging it to this meeting, charging along, running like fury. 
you're like, bloody hell, what else are they doing? They shoot off and you just potter along. You get to the um, meeting, takes you 25 minutes, and you discover that your colleague arrived like 10 minutes early, but they've had to go off and get a shower. And, and they obviously had a rucksack on their back with all their normal clothes on, and they've gone off to have a shower. And so you go to the meeting, and they're coming in, and they're still dusting, letting themselves down, and they've just got changed into their clothes, and they come to join you. And that's slightly what is going on in, in, in the urban sense. It's fine if you're doing it for exercise and you're at the weekend or whatever, but, but, but inside a city, you're not a walkist. No one's a walkist. You just walk. And in many parts of Northern Europe, you're just you're not a cyclist even. You just cycle. You don't have showers. You don't wear funny clothes. No one in the Netherlands has a shower in their office. They think that's odd. You just get on your bike because you're not going at sweating speed. You're just going. And of course, the Netherlands fact, it's quite windy too. And, and so, you know, it, but we are getting there. And it's a bit like all these other things. The cycling, the sort of mammal culture has been good for cycling. There are risks to it as well. But actually, that community has really brought cycling. And certainly in the early days, they were the ones who were putting pressure on the first changes to infrastructure, getting cycle lanes in and bringing that community of cycling. And what happens is as you get more people, you can't go that fast in the city because there are just too many cyclists. So it actually naturally sorts itself out. It all begins to slow down and you've got parents and children on cycle lanes. So this is all part of a journey and every country takes that journey and that trajectory in a slightly different way. And, but I think we're all aiming for the same place, which is a 25 to 30% cycling in a city, which is by all accounts about right, because a lot of people will be walking and some people on public transport. Um, but that, that feels about right. But how we get there is different city by city, country by country. And in terms of that cycling infrastructure you mentioned there, what do you think works and what doesn't work? You have to have segregated cycle lanes, period. Nothing else will do. No, no, no mother's going to take their child on, uh, and, and trust a little bit of white paint on, on the side of a road when there's a two-ton truck. I mean, that's a joke. So it might be the, the way you get there. You start with a white line, out's better than out, but that is not, that's not going to transform cities. It has to be segregated. Um, just that's the way it is. One thing as well of that perception of cycling, uh, you know, in the sweaty man in Lycra is, is it's a man. And making cycling broader feels like one of the ways to get to that 30%. Um, what's your customer base in terms of men versus women? Do you know that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, um, it's not linear globally. So it changes depending on where you are in the world. Um, we're about 35% women in the UK. Um, and then that changes a bit more in, in Southern Europe, a bit, bit less in Northern Europe. Funnily enough, in Asia, actually, um, we have pretty high percentage of women because couples do the recreation together. And the biggest barrier is safety. And I think that is a, a fact that um, men are less safety conscious than women. So whilst your infrastructure isn't as, as comprehensive there is that risk. But I think the industry as a whole, and this is not a UK thing at all, also has a large part to play. So we are focusing, we sell most of our bikes through independent bike dealers, um, IBDs. And we, 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 we tend to sell through urban bike stores, obviously, because we're an urban and brand. 
And pre-COVID, one of our biggest investments in marketing was bringing all of those independent bike dealers to the factory and to London to have a few days of fun, to really understand who we were, what we stood for, and and, and just have a laugh, eat fish and chips and pedal up the mile. Um, and, you know, we were bringing in 250 dealers from Japan, America, Italy, France, wherever, to spend a few days with us. And out of that 250, we had 12 women from 250 representatives of our stores all over the world. And that's one of the reasons we actually opened our junctions. It wasn't to sell bikes direct to the consumer. It was to redefine the, the, the purchasing experience for the consumer. Because if your store is very male-dominated, and also a lot of the stores are getting better, but a lot of the stores historically were just cluttered, techie, like not a, a normal shopping experience. You'd get in there and it'd be heaving with bikes and bits and bobs and parts everywhere. And a, a, a guy would turn up and say, well, do you want the Shimano 364, the 296? Or, and you want the hardtail, softtail? Do you want the gravel bike, the softtail? Just like, uh, bike, please. Oh, and they look down at you. What do you mean? What bike? You know, so you've got to understand your audience. And so in our stores, we try to have 50% women, both front of house, back of house. And our stores are airy and just interesting. Come and have a look around. You don't have to buy anything. Just come and pot around. And what we did, why we did that is because we wanted to try and demonstrate if we tried this and if it worked, we could then say to our dealers, we've tried it. We've taken the risk. We've, in, it, it, we've recruited female staff and it's having a really positive effect on our sales and it's opening up a market that you're not even talking to, which is half of the market, which are women. So, you know, it, 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 we've still got a long way to go. And again, it's slightly unfathomable, actually, why the industry is so male, but, but it is and, and that needs to change. You've also worked hard on the engineering side to get more women um, in the factory. H how's that been going? Well, it depends where you're talking because, you know, shop floor, there were challenges. Um, and I, I mean, I've got three older sisters. Uh, I, my wife is one of three sisters and I've got three daughters. So I'm a sort of roaring feminist, um, but I'm an engineer. And, uh, and that often is very male orientated. So on the shop floor, on the assembly side, we made a lot of progress quite quickly, actually, because it's, it's, it's very we had to get rid of some of the jobs that were very physical, but we've got machinery and cobots and all that sort of stuff. So done. The brazing side took a lot longer because it's sort of seen as being more male, but no reason for that at all. It's it's a very delicate, fine job. So it's it's not about male or female. It's about the person, whether they like that care and it's very focused. And we're getting there. And now, you know, one of the, the, the great we, we sort of steps forward was, was one of our female brazers who'd come from the company in a different part of the company. She was just awesome. And then she's headed up our training with Abdul. So now that's really changed the whole sort of one of the best brazers is a female and that inspires a lot of other people to join the bit. And then across the company, we're not just a manufacturer, we're a distributor, we're a brand, we've got customer service, we've got all these other things in between. The bit that's tricky is design and mechanical engineering and production engineering because that sector is not attracting women. I mean, you know, when I went to university studying mechanical engineering, there were in a course of 50, there were probably less than 5% women. So that pool of talent, particularly that pool of talent with 20 years experience, 
there are companies with much deeper pockets and bigger than us that also want to have women represented in their business. So you're fighting over a very small pool of talent and it is hard um, and we're trying our best. And the thing is, for my, for my, to my mind, um, it's even more important for a business like ours to have a sort of equal representation because half our market are women. You know, I mean, if we were selling a product that was only for men, I wouldn't be so bothered about it, but we're not. We are absolutely, the bike is totally useful and totally relevant to men and women. And so, and it's, it's, you know, that's one of the other great things about London. It's so cosmopolitan. We've got 50 different nationalities. It's not just gender. It's everything else. The more different perspectives you have in a business, whether it's religion, race, gender, anything else in between, the more likely you are to engage with that community. You know, you need to... When you're t- selling something, you need the person you're selling to has to feel welcome in the product that they see. And if they're not seeing themselves in the product because you're a one-dimensional, you're selling it as a one-dimensional product in all of the way you communicate and your imagery, then they're never going to feel like it's something for them. And the bike is the most, you know, it's, it's so welcoming. Anyone can jump on a bike. Most people have learned to ride a bike because their parents run behind them. So it should be for everyone. But you need to somehow bring that into your organization. Um, and London really does help because it's so cosmopolitan. I wonder if you still think there's a problem in terms of our education system that engineering isn't portrayed as creative, even though obviously it is, in that we have this sort of dichotomy, the arts are the creative side, and then there's technical sciences, mm. STEM mm. stuff. Yeah. And it isn't emphasized how creative engineering and the other sciences can actually be. I mean. It does my head in because the problem we have in it is a cultural thing. I, I, I've done all sorts of work outside of Brompton in the education space. And it starts right at primary. Are you, are you arty or are you all sort of mathsy? I mean, that's a, it's like, like by the time you're about five, you've, you've been pigeonholed. But look at Leonardo da Vinci. I mean, he wasn't maths or art. He was everything. And there's this idea that you go down one road or you go down the other. That's absolutely you. If you want to innovate, you need to be a thinker. You need to be coming up with new ideas. You need to be challenging. You need to be inspired by nature. You need, and you need to turn that into a product. You need to have a, an appreciation of maths because maths runs through creation in terms of making stuff but you've absolutely got to be artistic you know you've got to have the thing that aesthetically pleasing you it's got to it's got to be inspiring it's on so many levels and there, there are problems there and gosh i mean this is where you know you, you've got to just realize what your job is in life and we can't do everything and i've just got to stick with you know making bikes and because you could get caught up in all this other stuff that needs sorting out get nowhere um, well i think that's a really lovely place to end thank you so much for chatting today my pleasure will butler adams and dan davies book is the brompton engineering for change out now i'm rosamond Irwin, and you've been listening to intelligence squared thanks so much for joining us <laughs>